we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. Jim Scott was talking too loud. It was a spring day in March of 1963. 14-year-old Jim was sitting next to the telephone in his parents' home in Washington, D.C. He was speaking to a friend on the other line, complaining about their mountain of homework. The boys were talking over one another, neither one giving the other one a moment to allow for real silence. But then Jim stopped. He thought he heard something. His friend was still speaking. Jim urged him to shut up. Over the stagnant buzz of the line, Jim heard it again. Voices. Not his. Not his friends. Don't worry, Jim heard a grown man say over the line. It's just two kids talking about homework assignments. Jim didn't make much of the incident, but he did tell his parents. Though it was a weird occurrence, Jim soon forgot about the whole ordeal. He had no idea that he had just caught government agents listening in on his family's phone line, hoping to gain intel relating to Jim's father, journalist Paul Scott. Jim also couldn't fathom that 45 years later, long after his father had passed away, those mysterious voices would be key evidence in proving the existence of one of the Central Intelligence Agency's most secretive, most illegal operations. Welcome. 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Operation Mockingbird, an alleged program conducted by the Central Intelligence Agency over the course of the 1950s, 1960s, and early 1970s. Mockingbird was believed to be a widespread operation intended to influence public perception of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. According to the main conspiracy theory about this subject, at its height, Operation Mockingbird was a huge network of domestic and foreign journalists that were all being influenced by the CIA. However, the CIA has long contested that this was not the case. In the fallout of the Watergate scandal in the mid-1970s, a number of the CIA's most secretive and controversial operations were made public, and the agency took a step back from some of these more, well... Well, you can just say illegal. You're right. The CIA abandoned a number of illegal programs after Watergate. Though Mockingbird was not among the programs known to be discontinued, it is generally believed that it was shut down, but remained classified. We should be clear, the Central Intelligence Agency has never confirmed that a so-called Operation Mockingbird was used to establish a network of journalists and control the American media and, by extension, the views of the American public. But given that this is the CIA we're talking about, just because they don't confirm something exists doesn't necessarily mean there's nothing to the story. In this episode, we're going to look at the early history of the CIA and how the geopolitical climate of the world post-World War II combined with the brewing conflict of the Cold War to give birth to an agency that could, essentially, do whatever it wanted under the purview of national security. We'll follow some of the agency's shadier activities through the mid-20th century. Finally, we'll look at how the CIA was impacted by the fall of the Nixon administration and explore what all of that means regarding Operation Mockingbird. Then next week, we'll look at the theories about whether or not Mockingbird really did exist in the way that many people believe. It's probably difficult to imagine a time when the Central Intelligence Agency didn't exist. A decent chunk of the 24-hour news cycle's coverage deals with matters of state and foreign relations. The message is repeated again and again. 
America is constantly at risk of attacks by its enemies. And one of the few things that allow us to prevent those attacks is our robust intelligence apparatus. Hollywood has also played no small role in cementing the CIA's spot in the permanent zeitgeist as a kind of intersection between fantasy spy stories and the real-life drama of gathering and interpreting intelligence. But there was a time when the idea of the CIA itself was rather radical. Before 1945, the United States only maintained intelligence agencies during times of active war. During World War II, the United States military relied on the Office of Strategic Service, known as the OSS, to oversee intelligence gathering and covert operations. The OSS only existed from 1942 to 1945, but it served as the precursor for the modern-day CIA in a number of ways. OSS operatives oversaw the training and arming of foreign soldiers that fought the Axis powers in multiple theaters of war. They recruited spies from within enemy governments, most notably Germany, and set them up in positions where they would be able to funnel intelligence back to the Allies. Most notably for this episode's subject, OSS operatives maintained close relationships with American journalists who were embedded overseas to cover the war effort. In some cases, these journalists even helped the OSS by writing and publishing stories through foreign newspapers with the intention of misleading enemy organizations. This kind of arrangement is very similar to what the CIA would later be accused of doing through Operation Mockingbird. World War II ended in September of 1945. With that, the OSS's mandate was fulfilled and, according to common practice, it should have been disbanded as American soldiers were either called back home or reassigned to help with the reconstruction of war-torn Europe. But President Harry Truman and the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff knew that they were at a vital, defining moment in world history. World War II, more than any war the world had seen before, relied heavily on intelligence, subterfuge, and the fast-paced development of military technology, most notably the atomic bomb. To meet the growing intelligence needs of the Allied powers during the war, the OSS at its height had 13,000 operatives and personnel. That's a lot of manpower. And once the war was over, Truman and his advisors recognized that it would be a waste to completely do away with such an effective intelligence and espionage outfit. The world was entering an uncertain chapter in history. The use of the atomic bombs in Japan opened the door for the rapid development and mobilization of weapons of mass destruction. The post-war world was being carved up and divided between communism and capitalism, with an alarmingly large chunk of it claimed by Soviet Russia, which was already positioning itself to become America's next main foe. It was this that led Truman to do what he did. Leaders in the FBI and the U.S. State Department objected to the creation of a new intelligence agency, which they feared might impede on their own jurisdictions. But Truman was adamant about creating a permanent organization that could continue to utilize the intelligence-gathering strength of the OSS. It took a few iterations, 
before the U.S. executive branch landed on the agency that acts as America's main intelligence apparatus today. Truman first established the Secret Services Unit, or SSU, in 1945, which had the mandate of preserving the infrastructure of the OSS. Less than six months later, in January of 1946, the SSU was absorbed into the newly established National Intelligence Authority. The NIA and its various intelligence branches only lasted for 20 months before they were dissolved by the National Security Act of 1947. That same act established the National Security Council and, more importantly, the Central Intelligence Agency, America's first peacetime intelligence service. There are two vital, defining things that should be noted about how the CIA was established. The first was its mandate. The agency wasn't tasked with enforcing the law as the Federal Bureau of Investigation was. In fact, its charter specifically prohibited the agency from even operating on American soil. It was also a notably separate organization from the United States military. Well, this essentially means that the CIA and its operatives were beholden to a much looser set of rules than either of these established organizations. Secondly, the idea of the CIA as a peacetime agency is kind of laughable. Think of the series of events that led to its creation. The CIA was, put bluntly, established so that the American government could benefit from the same level of widespread surveillance and intelligence collection that they had previously only been able to get away with during war. In short, despite being labeled as a peacetime agency, the CIA was essentially created so that one arm of the American intelligence community would always act as if we were at war. And in doing so, they would employ drastic measures allowed by near-unlimited resources, limited oversight, and a broad blanket mandate to act in the interest of American security. As America moved on from World War II and into the chaotic early decades of the Cold War, they would use this freedom as they saw fit, even against American citizens. Next, we'll discuss how the CIA utilized the growing anti-war movement as an anti-communist tool and the expose that nearly destroyed them. Now, back to the story. With its establishment in 1947, the Central Intelligence Agency set about defining its own place within the broader network of American government organizations. The agency hit some bumps in its mission to serve as an effective intelligence service, at least in the first few years of its operation. As we've said, the CIA had a looser mandate and mission than some of the older government organizations. In the years building up to the breakout of the Korean War, the founding agency struggled to define exactly what it was meant to do. President Truman, who had signed the agency into existence, saw it as an organizational tool, something to manage and disseminate the intel that was presented to the Oval Office on a daily basis. The U.S. Department of Defense wanted the CIA to provide support to the already established branches of military intelligence. It was unclear in those early years what exactly the CIA would focus on specifically in the broad world of intelligence. 
given that a key argument in favor of establishing the agency had been prevention of another unexpected attack, like the one on Pearl Harbor in 1941, many assumed the CIA would act in line with America's military goals. And the State Department, which actually provided most of the intelligence that the agency used in its early years, wanted the CIA to support global covert operations designed to promote favorable views on the United States. Ultimately, the CIA would come to exist in the center of the Venn diagram created by these three goals, but it would struggle early on to prove itself as an effective and essential intelligence gathering apparatus. The agency didn't keep a good track record, incidentally. It failed to predict the outbreak of the Korean War when North Korea invaded South Korea in 1950 and failed again to predict China's entry in the war that same year. The CIA did not pick up on the warnings that immediately preceded the Soviet takeover of Romania or Czechoslovakia and also failed to predict or prevent the overnight construction of the Berlin Wall in 1961. The Soviet Union and their allies were gaining steam and the CIA was forced to define itself and the scope of its mandate as the United States entered into the decades-long Cold War. The global threat posed by the USSR gave the agency an opportunity to develop and implement its own operational strategy. The Central Intelligence Agency claims in its charter that the scope of its jurisdiction is limited specifically to overseas operations. They are not a law enforcement agency as the FBI is, and thus they cannot operate on American soil. But as we're all aware, they do that all the time. The Cold War was defined by an idea of mutually assured destruction. It was the idea that because both sides had nuclear weapons, neither side would actually use those weapons, as to do so would ensure nuclear war and likely annihilation. The arms race, the space race, through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the two global superpowers were competing against one another in most areas of science and technology. This competition also spread to the realm of journalism and media. The Cold War was fought in the realm of public perception as much as it was fought using proxy wars. It was more than just a conflict between two superpowered nations. It was a battle between two very distinct ways of life. American propaganda in the 1950s created a period of strong anti-communist sentiment known as the Red Scare. It warned people that Soviet spies were everywhere and that communist Russia was hell-bent on conquering the United States and taking away its people's everyday freedoms. On the other side of the world, Soviet propaganda emphasized the strength of its communist government against the soulless capitalism of the United States. One interesting thing about this story is how the public became aware of the CIA's shady dealings with journalists. The series of exposés published from the late 1960s through the late 1970s actually began with an investigation into the CIA's relationship to social and civic organizations. Well, this leads us to the National Student Association, the international organization of journalists, and the article that nearly crippled the Central Intelligence Agency. 
The International Organization of Journalists was founded in 1946 in Copenhagen, Denmark. On the surface, this was a collective of journalists from Soviet and Eastern European nations that acted as something of a congress for the journalists in that part of the world. In reality, the IOJ was a front, funded by the Czech Communist Party and open to communication and direction from the KGB in Moscow. The IOJ was just one of several similar organizations that were not so secretly funded by the Kremlin for the purpose of spreading propaganda to the rest of the world. The organization tried to maintain the illusion of being a free press for a while. But by 1950, every single member of the organization was also a member of the Communist Party, and KGB operatives held a number of high-ranking positions. The United States intelligence community knew that it needed to work to counteract the IOJ's efforts with its own network of pro-American propaganda. The task, naturally, fell to the still-new CIA. They found their proxy in the National Student Association. The NSA was founded in 1947, the same year as the CIA, in Madison, Wisconsin. Its main purpose was to represent the Colleges of America at the International Union of Students, a global congress of students based in Prague. It was also intended to help forward the more liberal politics of the younger generations of Americans who were becoming increasingly concerned with the right-wing zealotry of the early Cold War era. When we talk about the United States government surveilling and actively persecuting anti-war or left-leaning American students, we usually focus on the presidency of Richard Nixon. But the NSA-CIA scandal reveals that from the very first year of the CIA's existence, the U.S. government had concerns about liberal politics infecting America's youth. It was the political schism that actually allowed the CIA to get involved with the NSA in the first place. In 2015, a great compilation of the story was published in Patriotic Betrayal, the inside story of the CIA's secret campaign to enroll American students in the crusade against communism by Karen Padgett. We referenced Padgett's book, as well as the review of it from The New Yorker's Luke Menand for a large part of this section. As early as 1948, just after the organization was formed, the NSA was on the radar of the FBI, the U.S. State Department, and of all things, the Catholic Church, which played a big role in anti-communist propaganda through the 1950s and 1960s. None of these organizations had a chance at infiltrating the pro-civil rights, anti-war NSA. But the CIA was new. It didn't have the baggage of a more established wing of the American government. Beginning in the early 1950s, its operatives were able to position themselves as more forward-thinking, liberal agents whose views aligned with the student leadership of the NSA. Well, that's ridiculous, of course. The CIA reports directly to the president. Its aims are as much in line with the broader American military as anything else in the executive branch. But the ploy worked. In 1948, no one had heard of the CIA, and even fewer people knew what it was intended to do. CIA operatives were able to position themselves as liberal anti-communists to get in with the NSA. 
There are few exact names in the story of how these two organizations came together, but the general account is this. As early as 1948, CIA operatives began underwriting the budget for the NSA's offices and operations. With that, they were able to influence the outcome of student elections and policies that the NSA brought to the International Union of Students. The IUS split up in 1948 after the NSA withdrew in objection to a coup that had occurred in Czechoslovakia. They formed their own international body, the International Student Conference. The IUS and ISC functioned essentially as proxies for the U.S. and the USSR, respectively. The NSA operated as a sort of window for the CIA. Through the organization's access, CIA operatives could reach students across the country, as well as anti-war and civil rights organizations. They could also use NSA students as proxy operatives whenever they went overseas to deal with ISC affairs. As an extension of the American government, the CIA was prohibited from dealing directly with USSR-controlled countries that the United States did not have diplomatic relations with. But members of the NSA could interact with anyone they wanted, including student groups from communist countries. The CIA used the NSA to funnel money to these student groups, influencing elections and working to put pro-American, anti-communist leaders in charge. The students in these foreign groups were often the children of prominent military and political leaders. Through the NSA, the CIA was able to start building files on these individuals and amass data that may come in handy in the years to come when the students grew up and took leadership positions in communist governments. And the CIA was able to identify individuals who may be partial to a bribe to become an informant and report on what was going on in these communist countries. This went on for the better part of two decades, and it's worth noting that exposés on this relationship don't include details on any noteworthy intelligence that was gathered. It's unclear how much the CIA really benefited from this course of action beyond a general sense that they were doing their part to fight communism. It's possible, well, even likely, that the CIA's actions in regards to the NSA were just another check mark on their list of things they could do to fight the Cold War. They didn't even seem that concerned that their secret relationship would be uncovered. In the mid-1960s, a series of articles were published investigating the finances of certain tax-exempt organizations, which included the NSA. Though these early articles didn't outright make the connection, they did lead to a string of pieces that claimed the CIA had a hand in funding certain outwardly liberal American organizations. Perhaps the CIA didn't understand the optics of such activities if they were made public. They learned their lesson the hard way. It was Michael Wood, a college dropout who had briefly worked for the NSA in 1966, who exposed the whole operation. Wood was hired as an organizer and quickly came to the realization that the NSA conducted no fundraising activities. The president of the NSA, Philip Sherburne, handled donations personally. Wood dug deeper. And ultimately, Sherburne revealed the organization's real secret to him. Wood, in turn, 
started to document as much as he could regarding the organization's finances. His work eventually made it to Ramparts, a new left-leaning magazine. Ramparts reporters built off of the information Wood had compiled. They found that a huge number of donors to the NSA were, in fact, dummy corporations, all of which had been set up by and were controlled by the CIA. CIA officers got wind of the story and tried to get ahead of it by scheduling a press conference. Their intended line was that, while they had indeed provided money to the NSA, they had never acted to influence the organization or its leaders. Ironically enough, this is exactly what the leaders of the IOJ would say when pressed about how much control the Kremlin had over them. They took the government's money, sure, but they certainly didn't do the government's bidding. Naturally, people didn't buy it. The Ramparts expose was published in March of 1967 and soon became a national news story. As other reporters began looking into the story, they started to uncover dozens of other civil rights, social, political, and religious organizations that were actually CIA fronts or had received CIA money. The entire network of dummy organizations came down in a matter of weeks. Michael Wood was even asked in an interview if he thought he had destroyed the CIA as an effective instrument in the Cold War. He hadn't. But he had lit the fuse that would eventually lead to the explosive dressing down of the entire agency in the mid-1970s, following the Watergate scandal and Richard Nixon's resignation. Now, you may be wondering at this point what all of this has to do with journalists or Operation Mockingbird. The answer is twofold. First, the CIA-NSA relationship revealed that the Central Intelligence Agency employed non-government assets to conduct business or form relationships with foreign operatives abroad. Student groups were particularly suited for this kind of work. They could travel internationally, were seen as not much of a threat, and were afforded certain diplomatic protections as non-military, non-government civilians. Another class of person who met these exact criteria were journalists. And the exposure of the relationship with the NSA would soon lead conspiracy theorists to wonder who else the CIA had recruited to work as non-agency assets. Well, the second connection between the CIA-NSA scandal and Operation Mockingbird is the bold, shocking claim made by author Deborah Davis. In her 1979 unauthorized biography of Washington Post owner Catherine Graham, Davis claimed that the NSA-CIA relationship was part of the directive of an Operation Mockingbird, a wide network of journalists used by the CIA to push pro-American propaganda in response to the Soviet-controlled international organization of journalists. Davis's claim would come under fire along with a lot of the claims she made in her books, but she is the one who seemed to have first brought Operation Mockingbird to the public's attention. But what really was Operation Mockingbird? Was it as widespread a conspiracy as Davis claimed? Was it something more mundane? Did the program exist at all? We'll discuss the hearings of the Church Committee, the fallout of Watergate, 
and the revelation of the real Operation Mockingbird when we return. Now back to the story. In 1967, Ramparts Magazine published a groundbreaking expose on the Central Intelligence Agency and its financial relationship to the National Student Association. In the fallout of the scandal, the National Student Association formally cut all ties with the CIA and went on in its operations for the next 11 years until it was dissolved in 1978 and reformed into the new United States Student Association. The CIA, however, saw a cascading collapse of its network of front organizations through which they had funneled money to various foreign bodies. For the previous 20 years, the CIA had a hand in some of the biggest geopolitical stories, from the Iranian coup to the Bay of Pigs. But now, for the first time in its 20-year history, the CIA itself was the front-page news. And that's the last thing you want when you're a covert intelligence agency. The 1967 NSA scandal was the first in a series of events that severely damaged the CIA's reputation and its capabilities as an intelligence organization. The agency was brought down even further in the early 1970s when it became embroiled in the Watergate scandal. We could spend an entire episode on the specifics of the Watergate scandal, But here are the basic facts about how the CIA played into it. Watergate involved a break-in at the Democratic National Committee's headquarters committed by operatives of the Nixon administration. Nixon's attempts to cover up his involvement in the scandal ultimately led him to resign from the presidency. Over the two years during which the scandal was investigated, it came out that two former CIA officials had been involved in the initial plan to break into the DNC offices. Even more damning was that in the fallout of the scandal, it came to light that Nixon had personally directed the CIA to obstruct the FBI's investigation into his activities. After Nixon resigned in 1974 and the full scope of his corruption was laid bare, the American public's faith in their government was fractured. There are some who say it has never recovered, even to this day. There was, naturally, a huge concern about the CIA being used as the attack dog for a corrupt administration looking to obstruct justice. The Watergate scandal had exposed a massive web of corruption and subterfuge from within the highest office in the nation. The CIA, with its murky jurisdiction and covert dealings, was suddenly viewed as the embodiment of everything wrong with the government. Reporters saw their chance to really dig deep into the CIA's most controversial secrets. In 1974, New York Times reporter Seymour Hersh published an expose on Operation Chaos, an illegal CIA program that placed American citizens associated with the anti-war movement under surveillance. On top of that, it went against their mandate to not operate on American soil. The Hirsch articles were seen by many as the final nail in the coffin of the CIA. In addition to Operation Chaos, Hirsch reported on a number of other illegal CIA programs that engaged with everything from supporting foreign propaganda to attempting assassinations of world leaders. 
These exposed black ops programs were considered the first of a series of programs and actions carried out by the CIA that were finally exposed after the fall of the Nixon White House. This assortment of mostly illegal activities came to be officially referred to as the Family Jewels. The combined scandals of the NSA relationship, Watergate, and now the Family Jewels led to the creation of the Church Committee in 1975. Led by Senator Frank Church, the committee was tasked by Congress to investigate the CIA's actions over the previous two and a half decades and report on whether the agency had, as Hearst said, violated its charter. The Church Committee conducted hearings and investigations for over a year before finally publishing its findings in April of 1976. The final report was comprised of six books and seven volumes of transcripts from Senate hearings. The results were more than disturbing. The declassified sections of the Church Report revealed an astounding amount of wrongdoing. The CIA had engaged with the FBI to intercept and read the mail of private U.S. citizens without a warrant. It had conducted a similar operation on international mail coming to and from China. The agency had commissioned numerous failed assassination plots against Fidel Castro, the then president of Cuba. It had engaged in behavior modification research under the infamous MKUltra program. And this was just the work that was declassified. Huge portions of the Church Committee's reports on the family jewels were redacted when it was first reported on in 1976. One unanimous opinion at the time of the Church Committee's report was, given how distressing the declassified material was, the classified material must have been astoundingly worse. We should note here that despite the numerous bombshells included in the Church Committee's report, there was no mention of an Operation Mockingbird. The world's media concluded from the declassified reports that the CIA had engaged with a network of foreign journalists to push pro-American propaganda. Carl Bernstein, of All the President's Men fame, wrote an extensive article in 1977 that detailed the minutiae of how the agency identified, recruited, and utilized journalists around the world. This article served as a foundation of much of what we think we know about Operation Mockingbird today, Though we should note that Bernstein doesn't actually refer to the operation as Mockingbird. The actual name Operation Mockingbird didn't enter the public consciousness until a few years later. In 1979, Deborah Davis published Catherine the Great, Catherine Graham, and the Washington Post. As far as we can tell, this proudly unauthorized biography was the first public document to actually name Operation Mockingbird as we understand it today. Enacted in response to the International Organization of Journalists and its pro-communist propaganda. Davis claimed that Mockingbird was overseen by Frank Wisner, a former CIA deputy during the early 1950s. By the mid-1950s, Mockingbird had members of CBS, The New York Times, Newsweek, and dozens of other American media entities in its pocket. 
The broad goal of this program was to promote pro-American sentiment among the increasingly restless youth of the country and to destabilize pro-communist media efforts across the globe. Now, we should note here that Catherine the Great is not the most reputable source. The bibliography in the currently available version of the book has no sources for its claims about Operation Mockingbird. And the book was actually pulled by its publisher after only a few weeks in circulation, when it became clear that it featured more than a few factual inaccuracies. But, as Davis tells it, this was all an effort to discredit her because of what she wrote. Davis claimed that the principal operative of Operation Mockingbird was a man named Cord Meyer. Well, these facts may be tangential to the main saga of Mockingbird, but there are some conspiracists that think there's a deeper connection. During his time as the alleged point man behind Mockingbird, Meyer was married to a woman named Mary Pinchot. They divorced in 1958, and Mary subsequently became romantically linked to none other than President John F. Kennedy. Mary Pinchot Meyer was murdered in 1964, less than a year after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Her killers have never been found, and Davis maintained in the years after her book was pulled that her publication issues were specifically because she had talked about Meyer in the book. If you're interested in learning more about that story, I previously covered it in my other podcast, Unsolved Murders. After the publication of Catherine the Great, Operation Mockingbird remained an unsubstantiated conspiracy theory for over 27 years. But then, in 2007, the entire contents of the Church Committee report was declassified and made available on the National Security Archive. This declassified report actually did contain a reference to an Operation Mockingbird. According to the report, Mockingbird was a very minor surveillance operation that covered two Washington-based reporters for a month in 1963. It was not a broader global conspiracy or a network of turned assets. Rather, it was a phone-tapping operation of two journalists, Robert Allen and Paul Scott. Their column, The Allen Scott Report, had broken a number of stories that directly quoted classified intelligence, and the CIA was tasked with finding out who their sources were. Well, that's the official story, at least. But the CIA knows better than everyone that the official story is usually only part of the truth. In our next episode, we will look into the diverging stories surrounding Operation Mockingbird. There are two explanations for what really happened during the mission, and both involve a mixture of fact and rumor. Conspiracy theory number one. Mockingbird actually wasn't a massive network of foreign and domestic journalists that actively promoted propaganda at the CIA's behest, as the general assumption goes. The real Operation Mockingbird was what the declassified report says it was, a small, short operation designed to spy on two reporters. A series of articles and publications about the CIA's activities published in the 1970s falsely attributed Mockingbird as the name of a much larger operation. And conspiracy theory number two. 
Mockingbird was, in fact, a massive network of journalists turned into CIA assets that operated with no oversight throughout the 1950s and 60s. Finally, on a more modern note, we'll turn to conspiracy theory number three. The exposure of Mockingbird led to the creation of the surveillance state that America is today. One of the more frustrating things about the CIA's actions is how little we know and how much we can suspect. In the 70-year history of the agency, CIA operatives have allegedly embarked on just about every kind of illegal covert operation one can imagine. There are few things that are so outlandish that it's not within the realm of possibility to suspect the CIA may have dabbled in them. At the same time, so much of the agency's sordid history is redacted that we'll never get a full and complete view of the story. The CIA was established in a period when the very nature of war was changing. In the decades since, the agency itself has helped lead the charge to change the rules of engagement and redefine what is and isn't considered acceptable to ensure national security. Even today, we don't know the extent of what the CIA does or does not do in its dealings with other nations. The agency's darkest secrets remain classified, and all we can do is wonder about them. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Carter Roy